Welcome to the Cleaning and Crime Podcast. My name is Elise, and if you're wondering about the name, (laughs) I love to listen to true crime while I clean. So because cleaning and true crime are my two loves, I've combined the two. And every week I post a new whole house cleaning motivation video on my YouTube channel, See Elise. And in the corner of the video, I'm in a little bubble telling you about a true crime case that's interesting to me. So cleaning and crime. But for some, the cleaning footage is too distracting. Or some people just prefer to listen to their true crime and not watch it. If you want to check out the video version of today's story, be sure to check out my YouTube channel and you'll find a playlist of all of my cleaning and crime episodes. But if you just came here for the crime and not the cleaning, you're in the right place. I'm uploading my older episodes of cleaning and crime in podcast form. And once all the old ones are up and I'm caught up, my upload schedule will be weekly, the same day the video version goes up on YouTube. Some of the earlier episodes do have slightly lower sound quality than the newer episodes, and that's just reflective of improving my skills as I went, but also, in the beginning, I only ever intended for these to be videos. So as the episodes progress, hopefully you'll notice the sound quality improving. Trigger warning, this is a true crime podcast. Some episodes may be disturbing to some listeners. Be sure to check the show notes for each episode for specific trigger warnings. Thank you for listening. Enjoy. Today's true crime case is the murder of Kitty Genovese and how her 1964 murder is the reason why we have the 911 emergency system that we have today. Kitty's murder on the streets of New York on March 13th, 1964 was widely publicized, but not for what actually happened. Psychology classes would use her story for decades to come as the most famous example of the bystander effect or Genovese syndrome, which is the social psychological theory that individuals are less likely to come to the aid of a victim if other people are present. However, when using Kitty's murder to explain the bystander effect, most still recount the events and the aftermath incorrectly, even in textbooks. After the murder took place, the New York Times famously posted an article claiming that 38 neighbors watched the murder take place and did nothing to help and didn't call the police, ignoring Kitty's screams for help, claims that would later be proven false. The media fabricated and used that dramatic headline to push a narrative of rampant apathy in city people, particularly New Yorkers, claiming people in cities just don't care about their neighbors and they're terrible people. However, it simply wasn't true. So let's talk about what really happened on that night and how one inaccurate article changed the course of history. It's freaking fascinating. So who was Kitty Genovese? Catherine, or Kitty as she was known, Genovese was born on July 7th, 1935 in New York. She was the oldest of five in a Catholic Italian-American family. She was described as self-assured beyond her years, and she had a sunny disposition. She was very social, very friendly. Now, when Kitty was a teenager, her mother, Rachel, actually witnessed a murder. Oddly serendipitous to the rest of our story. This led to Rachel declaring that it was no longer safe to live in a big city. And she moved the family to New Cannon, Connecticut in 1954. Now Kitty had just graduated high school and she was actually planning to get married later that year. So she declined to move with the family. So Kitty actually moved in with her grandma in Brooklyn until the wedding. Now Kitty did end up going through with the wedding but it was annulled a few months later because Kitty was actually a lesbian. I think she came to terms with her sexuality and she was like, "Mm, this ain't it. 
Sorry, mistakes were made. <laughs> so now it's the late 50s. Kitty's a super cool lesbian working as a bartender in Queens. You'll love to hear it. Living her best life. She's friendly, she's outgoing, she loves her bartending job. Barflies referred to Kitty as one of the boys. Now as a bit of a side hustle, Kitty started taking bets on horses for her bar patrons. But in 1961, Kitty got pinched. She was arrested for bookmaking, she was given a $50 fine, and she got fired. Oddly enough, that mugshot that was taken at that arrest ended up being the photo that was used in the subsequent newspaper articles about her murder, and it became the most famous photograph of Kitty Genovese. Kitty did get another bartending job, she kept at it, and she was busting her ass. She worked her way up to managing Ev's 11th hour bar in Queens, and she was working double shifts, and she was saving up money because she had big dreams of opening up her own Italian restaurant. Yum. We love a driven, independent woman. Okay, so it's 1964. Kitty is 28 years old. She lives in the Kew Gardens neighborhood of Queens with her girlfriend, Marianne Zielanko. They've been together since 1963. And on March 13th, 1964, Kitty leaves work and she's driving home to Kew Gardens in her red Fiat. She's listening to this new song on the radio called I Wanna Hold Your Hand by this new British band, The Beatles, and she gets to a stoplight. Unbeknownst to Kitty, a man sitting in a parked Chevy Corvair near the Hoover Avenue stoplight where she was sitting had spotted her and was watching her. Inside that car was a man named Winston Mosley. And as Kitty's light turned green as she pulled away, Mosley followed. Kitty parked her car about 100 feet from her apartment. There was no parking like on the street right in front of her apartment, so she had to park a little bit further away. And it was about 3.15 in the morning. Mosley had followed Kitty home and he parked at a corner bus stop on Austin Street. Now as Kitty was walking up to her apartment, Mosley started running towards Kitty with a hunting knife in hand. Now there was no one around, it was 3.15 in the morning, so she heard him coming, so she broke into a run. And she starts running towards the front of the building. Now Kitty's entrance was actually around the back, so presumably she ran to the front because the first floor of the building was actually a bar. So presumably she's hoping she can run to the front door and there'll be people there to help. But unfortunately, that bar decided to close early that night and there was no one there to help. Mosley caught up to her and stabbed her twice in the back with his hunting knife, one of which hit her in the lung. Kitty famously screamed out, Oh my God, he stabbed me, help! Now several neighbors heard the cries, but only a few of them recognized the noise as calls for help. We have to remember it's 3.15 in the morning. People are asleep. And you know how sometimes you hear a noise when you're in a dead sleep and it wakes you up and you're not quite sure what woke you up, you know? And this attack is happening right in front of a bar. These neighbors are used to hearing people laughing, screaming, fighting in front of the bar, maybe getting too drunk, getting into brawls. But one neighbor, Robert Moser, looked out his window to see what the commotion was. And it was dark, so he couldn't really tell exactly what was going on, but he did see a man and a woman struggling. So he yelled out the window, let that girl alone. That was enough to spook Mosley, and he actually ran off. And Kitty stumbled off to the back of the building. So Moser thinks, hey, I did it. I broke up a fight. And he went back to bed. But he doesn't know that Kitty is seriously wounded or that her attack is far from over. In the only instance of a witness actually seeing what was going down and deciding not to help, was one witness, Joseph Fink. Joseph worked in the apartment building across the street. Now Joseph told police later that he did see Kitty being attacked with a knife, but he didn't call police. He did consider grabbing his baseball bat and going to help, but he decided against it and instead went down to the basement to take a nap. Now Mosley, he ran off, right? He ran all the way back to his car 
gets in his car, drives off. But then 10 minutes later, he came back and he drove around looking for Kitty, looking for cops, looking for an ambulance. There was nothing. Streets are quiet. And he's like, nobody called the cops. I'm gonna go finish the job. So Mosley ends up changing his hat, just in case somebody saw him. Better change my hat, my murder hat. And he heads back over to find Kitty. Now Kitty had gone into the vestibule of her friend's building. So she got into the main door to the building and then there was a hallway, some stairs, and then another door leading to the apartments. So she's struggling to get up those stairs and hoping someone's gonna find her. Unfortunately, the person that finds her is Winston Mosley. He peeks into that main door into the vestibule and sees her and he just walks in. And poor Kitty, weak from blood loss and her lung was collapsing. She couldn't really scream for help at this point. So Mosley continued to stab Kitty and then he strangled her. And when she was quiet, then he sexually assaulted her. Now there was one witness to this second attack, Carl Ross. Carl had opened up the door that Kitty was trying to get to that led to the apartments and he saw Kitty being attacked and he just panicked and shut the door and went back to his apartment. Then when Mosley wrapped up, he took the $49 out of Kitty's wallet and walked out. Now the attack in total was about 30 minutes long with a 10 minute or so gap in the middle. Kitty's friend and neighbor, Sophia Farrar, the friend who lived in the apartments that Kitty was trying to get to, found her shortly after the second attack and held her in her arms waiting for the ambulance to get there. Unfortunately, Kitty Genovese died in the ambulance on the way to the hospital. This occurred four years before implementing the 911 emergency system that we know today in the United States. If you needed the police at this time, you either needed to know the number of the precinct you were trying to call, or you had to call the operator and ask them to connect you to the closest precinct. Now there was only one call about Kitty's attack logged in the police log from that night. Now people said they called, but most of the people that called had only heard noises or heard the attack. They hadn't seen anything or it wasn't clear to witnesses what had happened, especially since the second attack occurred inside the building, out of sight. One person called saying they heard yelling in the streets. One person called and said, oh, a woman got beat up and he ran off and she staggered off around behind the back of the building. One woman said she called the police and was told, yeah, yeah, we already got a call about it and was hung up on. The NYPD was super corrupt at this point in history. They weren't exactly reliable. They could pick and choose which calls they wanted to respond to. And they decided what calls they thought were worthy of their time. Eventually police did get one call that they took seriously. And that call was from witness Carl Ross. He was the one that walked in on the second attack, opened the door and saw it and ran back to his apartment. Carl almost didn't call the police. He hesitated and he actually called some friends for advice first. The first friend he called told him not to get involved. And the second friend was actually a neighbor and said, come over to my apartment right away and we'll call the police. Carl actually crawled out of his window to get to his friend's apartment to avoid getting anywhere near the presumably still ongoing attack of Kitty. Now his actions may sound bonkers to us now, but many people believe that his actions were due to Carl actually being a gay man living in New York City in 1964, which at the time was illegal. Not only that, but police in his area had made arresting gay men a bit of a priority to clean up the neighborhood. He probably had distrust for law enforcement and that could have given him pause. Also, 
Carl was drunk at the time that this happened. So that could have also been a factor in his decision-making. It's also worth mentioning that this is Queens in 1964, and there was a large Jewish population in this neighborhood. Many had survived the Holocaust in concentration camps. So talk about a distrust of authority. And for the most part, the neighborhood did have the attitude of, oh, just don't get involved. They weren't shocked to hear someone screaming at 3 a.m. and most assumed it was a domestic disturbance or maybe someone was drunk. Just don't get involved. Now, police questioned Kitty's girlfriend, Mary, the next morning, which was really just a few hours later. And the questioning just sent her to around Kitty and Mary's relationship. And when police questioned the next door neighbors, the questioning also centered around Kitty and Mary's relationship. And Mary was the primary suspect at first. I mean, right? She was a lesbian. And they took poor Mary down and questioned her for six hours. Meanwhile, more neighbors are being questioned and the ones that actually saw shit described a black man with a wide brimmed hat and a white car. Oh shit. Mary doesn't have a wide-brimmed hat. Now, Winston Mosley was caught six days later on March 19th, 1964 in Ozone Park when a local man named Raul Cleary saw Mosley walking out of a neighbor's house holding a TV. So he walks out with this TV and he starts putting it in the trunk of his white car. Raul questioned him like, hey man, what are you doing with that TV? Mosley said, oh yeah, uh, they're moving. I'm helping them move. Raul yelled over to another neighbor and was like, hey yo, Jack, are they moving? Jack says, no, they're not moving. So Raul was like, fucking liar. They called the cops immediately and they actually disabled Mosley's car so he couldn't drive away. <laughs> not in my neighborhood. Helping them move my ass. But of course this act of neighborly badassery was not reported by the New York Times because that story didn't match up with their narrative that New Yorkers were the worst. Now when cops get there, they see that Mosley's car matches the description of the car that was seen in Kew Gardens six nights ago. And when they questioned Mosley, he admitted to killing Kitty and two other women, Annie Mae Johnson a few weeks prior and 15-year-old Barbara Kralik the previous July. Now I don't wanna give Winston Mosley too much attention. He was a woman-hating piece of shit. But the quick and dirty rundown is, he was 29, he was married with three kids, he had no criminal record. When he confessed to police, he said that he raped and killed all three women and that he liked to kill women because they were easier and didn't fight back. He found his victims by leaving when his wife was working nights as a nurse and just driving around looking for some woman to kill. He also confessed to committing 30 to 40 burglaries and a psychological evaluation after his arrest revealed that he is a necrophile. So, dead bodies. So the murder happened, Mosley was arrested and charged, and this case did not get that much attention at first at all in the press. But the New York Times editor, A.M. Rosenthal, was having lunch with his buddy, the police commissioner, Michael J. Murphy. And Murphy said to him at lunch, the queen story is one for the books and regaled him with a tale of 30 something people watching a woman being stabbed in the streets in New York. And Rosenthal thought, well, that's a hell of a story. So this motivated Rosenthal to publish an investigative report on the murder, which would be written by Martin Gansberg. And now suddenly, more than two weeks after Kitty's death, it's, it's front page news. On March 27th, the New York Times released the article claiming 38 people witnessed the murder and didn't call the police and didn't aid Kitty at all, which was erroneously titled, quote, 37 who saw murder didn't call the police, reducing the claimed witness number by one. So not only was the report itself just full of lies, but they fucked up the title too, so. 
Great job. Now the piece itself said, quote, for more than half an hour, 38 respectable law-abiding citizens in Queens watched a killer stalk and stab a woman in three separate attacks in Kew Gardens, end quote. The public was most shocked at the part in the piece where an unidentified neighbor who saw part of the attack debated calling the cops before asking a neighbor to call the cops for them because he, quote, didn't want to get involved. Now this unidentified witness was later revealed to be Carl Ross, the one who witnessed the second half of the attack, you know? Boy, I bet he regrets saying that to the police and the press <laughs> because I didn't want to get involved would be repeated for decades as the fucking tagline for the bystander effect. Now the public viewed Kitty's murder as proof of the callousness and apathy of life in American cities. People ran with this shit. Science fiction author Harlan Ellison stated loudly that 38 people, quote, watched Genovese get knifed to death in a New York street and claimed to have read somewhere that one of the witnesses ran from his third story window to quickly turn on his radio so as to not hear the blood curdling screams, which was not a report given by anyone. And contrary to what papers were saying, people did call the cops. And most that did call were blown off. Obviously, 38 people did not stand hanging out of their windows watching Kitty be killed. But that line is really what made this story stick and made it so famous. And that was fueled further by Winston Mosley himself when he was questioned by detectives as to how he dared attack a woman in front of so many witnesses, he calmly replied, I knew they wouldn't do anything, people never do. Now, although the idea that so many neighbors watched or heard the attack on Kitty and did nothing was not true, it sparked tons of research into diffusion of responsibility or the bystander effect. Social psychologists John M. Farley and Bib Latanay names, said in their research that the bystander effect is essentially that the larger the amount of bystanders decreases the likelihood that someone will step forward and help a victim. Reasons being that onlookers will see other witnesses not helping or believe that someone else will know how to help better or they feel unsure or unsafe aiding a victim in front of other people. And Kitty Genovese's murder was used to coin the Genovese effect, another name for this supposed phenomenon, that became a prominent feature in psychology textbooks and had been taught in psychology courses for decades. And even after the facts came to light of what really happened on the night of Kitty's murder, psychology textbooks still erroneously explained the false story to describe the bystander effect. And even still today, there are reports of psychology courses teaching the bystander effect and using incorrect versions of this story to teach it. Freaking wild! A study in 2007 found that the false version of the story continued to present itself in intro to psychology textbooks. And in a survey of the 10 leading undergraduate psychology textbooks, all 10 of them contained the Genovese case, eight of which suggested that the witnesses watched the attack from their windows, and two of them stated that witnesses could hear the attack but not see it. A different 2007 study that was confirmed in 2014 on the original New York Times article found all the flaws and found that there was zero evidence that there were 38 witnesses to Kitty's murder, and there was zero evidence that no one called the police. So somebody finally pieced it together and called out the truth. 50 years later. And then in 2016, after Winston Mosley died, an article was printed in the Times about Mosley's death, and in it, they inserted a little paragraph 
that called out the errors in the original article. The small paragraph in that article said, quote, while there was no question that the attack occurred and that some neighbors ignored cries for help, the portrayal of 38 witnesses as fully aware and unresponsive was erroneous. The article grossly exaggerated the number of witnesses and what they had perceived. None saw the attack in its entirety. Only a few had glimpsed parts of it or recognized the cries for help. Many thought they had heard lovers or drunks quarreling. There were also two attacks, not three. And afterward, two people did call the police." End quote. So they did correct themselves, 52 years later. And in a different article about Mosley's death. It's just, it's just shitty journalism. Now I watched the 2015 documentary, The Witness, which is actually made by Kitty's brother, Bill Genovese. And I highly recommend it. I have it listed in the description box. And in it, it's revealed that even right away, right after the Times article was printed, other journalists and competing newspapers pointed out the flaws and the errors in the article. They knew the shit in the Times piece was false. WNBC police reporter Danny Meehan told Bill Genovese, Kitty's brother, in the documentary, that he had asked Martin Gansberg, the writer of the original Times article, why he didn't reveal that the neighbors didn't realize what they were hearing was a murder. To which Ginsburg replied, that would have ruined the story. Then journalists basically just kept quiet because they didn't want to go up against a powerful figure like A.H. Rosenthal. I mean, this isn't a musical. This isn't Newsies. Gotta cover your ass, I guess. And even still, A.H. Rosenthal stands by the article, even though it was false, because it sparked numerous studies affecting social psychology as we know it, and gave us our current 911 emergency system. So too much good came out of it. Now, whether or not you agree with that pompous ass, those points are true. Kitty Genovese's murder did bring to light how difficult it was at the time to get a hold of the proper police station. And it was also difficult for law enforcement and investigators and journalists to track down who called the cops and when, what was said and how quick was the response time? Did anybody even show up? And then four years later, the US had the 911 emergency system that we have today. And not only did the case inspire psychological theories and emergency systems, but it was also a big inspiration in pop culture. Movies, TV shows, and songs were inspired by the false story of Kitty's murder. From Perry Mason to Law & Order to Law & Order SVU, and the Boondock Saints have all referenced the Genovese case. The Watchmen comic series from 86 and 87 referenced Genovese's murder as the sole reason why Rorschach became a vigilante. And someone even made a musical about the case. As I wrap up today's story, I want to mention that Winston Mosley was sentenced to death for the murder of Kitty Genovese. But Mosley appealed, and in 1967, that was reduced to life imprisonment because he was found to be medically insane at the time, and in 1967, New York State was abolishing most capital punishment. Now, Mosley actually managed to escape in 1968. He had undergone a minor surgery for a self-inflicted wound when he shoved an entire soup can up his ass, Oh yeah. And he took advantage of the low security and hit one of his transporting officers, stole his weapon and peaced out. And he went on a hell of a crime spree. Winston Mosley ended up breaking into a house and then calling for a cleaning service to send a maid to the house. And when the maid showed up, he held her hostage and sexually assaulted her. Now she did escape, but she was too scared to call the police. And she ended up calling the homeowners to warn them that there was some dude in their house. And the homeowners called the police, but it wasn't worth their time to go check that out. Another glowing example of the distrust of the police at this time and their corruption. So the homeowners were forced to go to the house themselves to check it out and were greeted with Mosley with a gun who held them hostage and sexually assaulted 
assaulted the wife. Mosley then stole their car, drove off, found another house to break into, and held them hostage for several days. Mosley did turn himself in after four days, and he was handed two additional 15-year sentences on top of his life sentence. He was up for parole many times, but he never showed any remorse for any of his crimes, so he was denied all 18 times. Why the fuck he was given 18 parole hearings is beyond me, but whatever. Basically, he was a piece of shit. He's dead now, but he lived out his life in prison to the age of 81. Peace out, idiot. So in the end, the events that transpired after Kitty Genovese's tragic murder were twisted and exploited for a good story, and as a result, impacted social psychology for decades, and resulted in our 911 system. So, did the good outweigh the bad? What do you think? I don't think I'd want my name used in some bullshit version of a story for decades. I don't know, I, I think it's pretty fucked up. I don't know, man. Rest in peace to Kitty Genovese. She sounded like an awesome person. And honestly, she sounded like someone I'd want to hang out with and have a beer with in a bar. I bet she had some kick-ass stories. I hope her family and her old girlfriend, Mary, find some peace. And I hope you all learned something today. Thank you for listening to Cleaning and Crime. If you'd like more content from me or you want to see the cleaning side of things, check me out on YouTube or TikTok or follow my socials, all of which are under the name C. Elise. S-E-E. E-L-I-S-E. -E. If you have any questions or any case ideas that you'd like to share, email me at cleaneclean at gmail.com. If you like what you heard, feel free to rate, review, and subscribe. These episodes include my personal opinions, and all information is compiled by me using references that are publicly available. Sources are included in the show notes. All parties described are innocent until proven guilty. See you next time.